very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to everything we have to offer, including tonight's full interview, just go to our website and click on subscribe. You'll get your login immediately. Don't wait get the truth now. And to upgrade your life and reach your full potential, listen to Sanitas. Go to sanitasradio.com and take a listen. I guarantee that your life will not be the same. And to get in touch with me, when I'll be a guest on this radio program, have suggestions or feedback, I always love to hear from you. Just click on the contact button of our website. And don't forget, like us on Facebook. For most people, the suggestion that the moon could be artificial is about as sensible as saying that it is made of green cheese. So here's the challenge from tonight's guest. Put aside your natural incredulity and listen with an open mind. Check out the evidence, then ask yourself, who built the moon? Could it be that the moon is artificial? Could it even be hollow? Does the moon really exist through some happy accident of collision in a random game of space skittles? Or is it a blueprint? And if so, who was the architect? The conclusions are astounding, and tonight's special guest is already a veteran of this program. His name is Alan Butler, a qualified engineer, but always fascinated with history, and made himself into something of an expert in astrology and astronomy. He has published four successful books on the Knights Templar and the Grey Legend. He is also a published playwright and a very successful radio dramatist. He is the co-author of the best-selling Civilization One, and was recently featured on this radio program with Janet Walter, too, discussing the secret origins of America. And directly from Bitlington, England, I would like to welcome Alan Butler. Hello, Alan, and welcome back. I'm Alan. It's nice to be back with you again. Always, always a pleasure. And traditionally, Alan, we don't like to repeat guests unless it's been a few months from their last appearance. But I found out you had co-written a book about the moon and it had to strike while the iron was hot. So I'm glad you you agreed to be back. Before we begin, when and why did you start questioning the nature of our moon? That's a really interesting question and perhaps the most interesting one of all because it came about almost entirely by accident. The man with whom I wrote Who Built the Moon, Christopher Knight and I, originally worked together on a book called Civilization One, which dealt with something completely different. What we were looking at was the very early creation of um, a mathematical and geometrical system which had been used in the construction of all the uh, major megalithic monuments in Western Europe. And uh, I'm talking about monuments like Stonehenge, which your listeners will have heard of. Um, There are many, many hundreds, if not thousands, such monuments. And they were all built using the same units of measurement. And Chris and I eventually discovered that these measurements were part of an all-encompassing measuring system, which was based upon both the size and the mass of the Earth. This surprised us greatly, as you can imagine. Um, But the problem with interviews such as this for me is that the the work is so big and so broad. But let's suffice it to say for tonight's questions that we discovered this ancient measuring system. Um, 
And our great surprise came as we were finishing the book Civilization One, when we began to realize that this measuring system, which we had uh, thought was devised just for the Earth, worked just as well on both the Moon and the Sun. This really, really shocked us. And so we thought after we'd finished and published Civilization One that we should take a look at this situation more closely. Um, and the more we looked, the more we found. And it was really completely by accident that we started to look at the moon. Believe me, had anybody said to me uh, a few years ago, oh, we think the moon's artificial, um, I would have thought they'd lost the plot. Oh, same with me. Years ago, the same thing with me. But the more I looked, and even as a child, I questioned certain things. We only see the same face. When there's an eclipse, we see the same size. And we'll discuss and dissect all those intriguing aspects later. But one aspect of your investigation that I really liked, right at the beginning of the book, you say, quote, God may well exist, and so too might aliens from all we, for all we know. But this book will only concern itself with hard scientific facts. And unlike so many of those trapped in the politically correct world of academia, our published findings will not be constrained by the demands of current convention. The information we put forward here is clear, testable, and we believe irrefutable, unquote. So how certain were you two that the moon is artificial? We, we were absolutely certain, and it was really all down to the mathematics of the situation. It, there are many other reasons for thinking the moon is artificial, and you've just quoted some of them. Um, what we were looking for, what we thought we'd seen, was a thinking mind uh, behind the creation of the moon, albeit 4.6 billion years ago. Uh, and we recognized that this thinking mind had not only created the moon to do all the things it does for the Earth, which no doubt we'll mention as time goes on, but had also been convinced that at some stage in the future they would be sentient creatures on the Earth who they wanted to tell what they'd done. So they put a lot of messages into the moon. I was going to say then coded messages, but they're not much of a code because they're so easy to see. Uh, and it really was this comprehension when we started to see the moon as a machine rather than just a random uh, object made by nature that it started to become obvious to us that there was a thinking mind behind it do you think there was a time in our past perhaps a distant past when our moon was not present yes i do mel but i don't think that that time was very long um it seems to me that um, the timescale between the creation of the Earth and the creation of the Moon was probably not much more than a few million years, uh, which sounds an awful long time when you think of the lifetime of a human being. But considering that the Earth is 4.6 billion years old, it's not a long time. Um, maybe a few million years before the Moon came into existence. Um, and until that point in time, the Earth was just... Uh, a semi-molten rock spinning crazily in space, turning on its own axis probably every two hours, and never likely to support life of any kind. It really was the introduction of the moon into the system that started to slow the Earth and eventually made it what it is today. That was my next next question. How would life be different today? If there was no think, moon, would there be even be life? I think it's very, very unlikely. One of the major problems with the Earth is it's a very unstable planet. Um, as most people know, the Earth has a molten core. Many planets do, but the Earth is still in its reasonably early stages of evolution. Um, the surface of the Earth upon which we live is a really, really thin crust overlying a planet which is very reactive. And one of the major problems with the Earth is that it tends to wobble a great deal because it's so unstable inside. And it's the wobbling which probably would have meant that no life could ever have developed because it's almost certain that every so often the Earth would have turned over on its own axis and this would have been cataclysmic for life. Uh, the other reason why I don't think there would be any uh, life on the Earth is because 
the Earth is in a position relative to the Sun, which um, scientists would call uh, a Goldilocks position. In other words, it's one of the few places in the solar system where water can exist in all its three forms, as, um, as gas, as liquid, and as a solid, of course, which is ice. But it could never do so without the moon. And the reason for that is, if even if the Earth uh, kept a level state relative to its orbit around the sun, we would have got a situation where certain parts of the Earth would be superheated by the sun, whereas other parts of the Earth would be really, really cold all the time. And when we say hot, um, those central parts would have become so hot that they could have melted lead, like can happen, for example, on the planets Mercury and Venus. But the presence of the moon in the specific orbit that it holds has turned the Earth gradually so that it has uh, an inclination. It's not exactly straight up and down north-south relative to the sun. It stands at a slight angle to the sun, and that is what makes seasons happen. So the presence of the moon allows the surface of the Earth to get an even warming from the sun all through the year by way of the seasons. And that is what allows water to exist in all its three states. Now, if we imagine that the moon had not been there, then no matter how you write the story, the Earth could not have had the kind of even warming it's getting from the sun some parts would have been fiercely hot, some parts would have been fiercely cold, and the chances for life in that environment would not have been good. Is this mostly because of the tides? As the moon approaches, you see the, 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 the water being pushed, and that's why we have the tides around the world. And without the moon, water essentially in the oceans will be completely stagnant? Yes. Assuming that water had ever had chance to exist in its liquid form, and for the reasons I mentioned a moment ago, that's probably fairly unlikely. But even had the water existed, it would have stayed still. And that's an interesting point in itself, Mel, because had the water not moved about or sloshed about, as Chris and I used to say, then the chances of life ever being transferred from the oceans onto dry land are also uh, pretty unlikely. Um, we know when the moon was created, when the moon was made, that it was very much closer to the Earth than it is now. It's gradually moved away from the Earth. And so the tides that it originally generated would have been colossal. This meant that, um, that there were huge river valleys. There were places where uh, the ocean was uh, crashing inland twice a day, um, and it was stirring everything up. And it's this stirring up, it's this wonderful porridge in the early oceans um, that allowed life to develop because nutrients were constantly being redistributed, which is something that can't happen on other planets. Since you mentioned the Earth core, well, uh, looking at the depiction of the Earth layers in your book, it brings me back to science books when I was younger, reading in school and so on. And we're told there's a hot fury fiery inner core of molten iron and at the center of our planet. But how do we know this? How do we know this is actually true if the Russians who hold the, the record while looking for oil used the Kola super deep borehole and they were only able to drill about eight miles? How do we know what is beyond those eight miles? I think we know because of another phenomena that um, has been created by the moon, which we call plate tectonics. If we were to look at our companion planets, in particular um, Mars and Venus and maybe Mercury to a certain extent, we see that they have generally solid surfaces. Um, Mars, for example, has uh, one giant volcano which doesn't seem to have erupted for a great time. But the surface of the Earth is very different. It appears in chunks and we call those plates. And they move about on the underlying liquid um, core of the Earth um, in, in a nature which we've come to call plate tectonics. Um, the, the continents upon which we live uh, are carried on top of these plates. But it would seem to be the case that the reason that those plates move about is because the surface of the Earth has never had the chance to settle down and solidify 
in the way that of other planets have. Um, and because of that, we get a lot of volcanic activity happening uh, on various parts of the Earth's surface. Now, these volcanoes bring up material from way down inside the Earth. Um, they bring up um, iron in particular. I mean, iron is one of the most abundant substances on the Earth, and we can find it uh, as a result of volcanic activity, along with many other minerals. And again, this is one of the things that has allowed life to develop on Earth. There is a constant recycling of, of minerals, which allows life to feed. Um, whereas if you look at um, what is more or less a barren planet, as far as we know, uh, like Venus or like uh, Mars, this kind of activity is not going on all the time. So if there is any life on those planets, it's going to be at a very low level. It's not going to have the activity that we have. But as for how we know what the centre of the Earth looks like, it's because of all the volcanic activity, which doesn't go on in the same way on the other planets. You mentioned Mars, our neighbouring planet. Why do you think plate tectonics have either never started or else never have been maintained on Mars? I think the, the main reason for that is that although Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos, Mars's moons are absolutely tiny in comparison with the size of the planet, whereas our moon is huge in comparison with the planet. Um, it's not all that massive in terms of its mass, but it is a huge body, and it still has a tremendous effect on the Earth every time it goes over. You mentioned a little while ago, Mel, the tides of the ocean, which in some parts of the world are absolutely massive, and the more so at certain times of the moon's passage, full moon and new moon, we tend to get very high high tides, very low, low tides. Now, it does seem that there was once water on the surface of Mars, but Mars suffered from not having the even warming which the Earth has, and so it's quite likely that the, um, the planet never developed a, a sufficiently strong atmosphere, uh, and the water either burned off or simply blew off into space, or it may be underground. And if it is underground, as scientists think it probably is, then maybe there will be some primitive life there. But it could never be like the life we have on Earth because there isn't the interaction going on between the internal goodies that exist inside Mars and what is going on in the surface. And most of the surface of Mars is like, um, like the Atacama Desert, for example, on the Earth. You mentioned Phobos and Demos. I remember the 1988 or 89 incident. Do you remember that, the Phobos incident with the Russian probe? Uh, not offhand, Mal. Remind me. Well, the two two satellite probes were sent. One was lost, I believe, a few days after it launched. But the second uh, Phobos arrived to the to the actual uh, rotation of Mars, and it as it's approaching uh, Phobos, something happened. They lost communication immediately. But before that, they were able to send some imagery, and uh, they haven't apparently showed it to the world. But it's uh, apparently very very Interesting what happened, a very mysterious situation that happened there. I don't recall having read about that, Mel, but I shall look that up first thing tomorrow. That's fine. And uh, your tape, you mentioned the Russians and the digging and, and the core. How do we know that this core is not actually just a few miles under us, and that's where the, the molten lava is coming from, from? And that leads me to the next question. Your take on oil, and I know this might be unrelated to what we're discussing, Oil, limited resource or abiotic, in your opinion? I think this is a really fascinating question. Um, I'm definitely on the fence as far as this one's concerned, Mel. There, there seems to be quite conclusive proof that oil is a, a biological product and that it's the product of millions of years of life living and dying. On the other hand, there are quite a few scientists in the world now who would be willing to bet that it doesn't matter how much oil we take, it always will be replaced. So it may not be a biological process. It may be more a chemical process. I think the jury is still out at the moment, but it's certainly being looked at more seriously than it used to be. I believe, again, these Russians have 
some Russian ex- uh, scientists proved by some conclusive experiments that it's actually abiotic. They were they were measuring this area in Russia, and every few years they would go back and oil would return. So I just wonder if this uh, artificial scarcity that we have all over the place, not only with oil, but so many other things. We can talk about diamonds, and I don't want to get too tangently here, but um, you know, it makes you wonder. It does make you wonder. And of course, you know, if you're um, in any way a conspiracist, and in many ways I have to be because of the work I do, it does make you wonder if making out that oil is so rare might not be useful to somebody. Absolutely. Uh, now, you say that despite the fact that the moon is almost certainly 4.6 billion years old, we will demonstrate beyond all reasonable doubt that Earth's moon cannot be a natural object. But how do we know the moon is really that old? Um, when the um, astronauts went to the moon uh, and when samples were taken from the moon by um, unmanned Russian probes, all those samples, of course, were brought back to the Earth. There is a way of uh, dating an object by way of what's known as um, um, looking at the oxygen isotopes in the rock. Um, And that can tell us, uh, in relation to the rocks that we find on Earth, how old the moon is. And it turns out that, strangely enough, there are places on the moon where the rock appears to be older than the rock on the Earth. The reason for that is most likely that um, the Earth in its early stages was uh, very, very hot. It was constantly cooking itself, even on the surface, whereas the moon, being so much smaller, cooled down more quickly, was not so uh, reactive, and so therefore um, Earth rocks uh, were regenerated for longer. Uh, But it really is... Uh, as a result of the moon rock that came back to Earth and its comparison with Earth rocks, the age of which was already known, that we can be sure that the moon um, is the same age or thereabouts as the Earth. And it's also what told us that the moon is not a captured asteroid. It cannot have come in as a one-piece thing and been captured by uh, the Earth's gravity and therefore become the Earth's moon because the oxygen isotopes tell us where the moon developed, not just when. And so, therefore, we know that it didn't develop somewhere else in the solar system. It definitely is a child of this part of the solar system. About this, you say oxygen isotopes of the rocks on the moon and on the Earth prove conclusively that they originated at the same distance from the sun, which could not be the case if the moon had been formed elsewhere. But how do we know the so-called moon rocks are even from the moon, and you probably have heard this, some moon rocks have been proven to be petrified wood obtained from somewhere on Earth. And actually, this comes not from me, not from just Googling it. It's from a Dutch museum. This was reported by the Associated Press in 2009. The Dutch National Museum said Thursday that one of its prized possessions, a rock supposedly brought back from the moon by U.S. astronauts, is just a piece of petrified wood. The museum acquired the rock after the death of former Prime Minister William Dries in 1988. Dries received it as a private gift on October 9, 1969, from the U.S. Ambassador J. William Minderhorf during a visit by the three Apollo 11 astronauts, part of their quote-unquote giant leap goodwill tour after the first moon landing. Your comments about this? Okay, um, I think my first comment would be, at the time when moon rock was being brought back from the moon, both by the Americans and by the Russians, um, you, you may be old enough or not old enough to know that there was absolutely no love lost between the USSR and the US at that time. Right, right. Um, and, and space was a big race. Um, but comparisons have been made between the rocks brought back by the Russians and the rocks brought back by the United States astronauts, and the rocks turn out to be broadly the same. Um, Now, if the Russians had thought that the United States was trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes, they would certainly have said so, and the same would probably have happened in reverse. 
Now, as far as the piece of rock you're talking about, which was given to uh, the Dutch, um, that is a big, big puzzle. And one wonders whether they were even given the right piece of rock. Um, I find this extremely difficult to explain. Uh, and I cannot say absolutely hand on heart that the rock which exists in various laboratories on the Earth now actually is moon rock. But there is another reason why I think it most certainly is. And that is because moon rock surprised everybody. Um, people had all sorts of ideas before we went to the moon and brought rock back as to how the moon might have come into existence. And the most popular theory at the time was that it was a captured asteroid, in which case they would have expected to find moon rock to be very different than Earth rock. But the great surprise came when the rock was so similar, but when they began to realise that although the moon is made of the same sort of stuff as the Earth, it's only one particular part of that stuff. In other words, it doesn't have the same uh, makeup in terms of um, iron in it and other metals in it and other heavier elements in it, which would have been expected before we went to the moon. So I think what I'm saying is, if someone was going to what we would call in Britain work a flanker here, they probably would have um, had a more complex makeup in the moon rock than they did. I hope that makes sense. It does, and if it's a captured asteroid, what are the chances of said asteroid being able to cover the sun 100% during an eclipse? Utterly impossible. Carl Sagan once said that this is the most remarkable um, event that, as far as he was concerned, took place anywhere in the solar system. The only reason it works, and I, I guess that many of the listeners have either seen themselves a, a total eclipse of the sun or have seen one on film or television. And the only reason that it works is because, as seen from the Earth, the disk of the moon is exactly the same size as the disk of the sun. Now, obviously it isn't. The sun is absolutely colossal in size, but it's much, much further away. Whereas the moon is quite small in size, but he's much closer. And so what you get in there is a line of sight effect. And it works because the moon is capable of standing one four hundredth part of the distance between the Earth and the sun, and the moon is exactly one four hundredth part the size of the sun. Now, the chances of this happening, and particularly with it happening over such a round number as four zero zero four hundred. Um, Carl Sagan found to be absolutely incredible. But neither he nor many other scientists have chosen to put forward a reason why this could be the case by chance. And I think that to understand why this is the case, you've got to look at the way um, academia is structured. Most scientists get the majority of their income either from the university that they work for offer research grants which come to them from various other places. For any scientist who lives his life or her life that way, to stand out on a limb and to say something as absurd as the moon must be artificially created is likely to lose all their funding overnight. We have to remember that in many respects, um, um, science is a bit like a religion. It is structured in a certain way And if you want to stay under its protective umbrella, you've got to play the game. I don't think it's like, I think it's, it's a religion because it has almost the same dogma. You disagree with what they say and you're out. That's why people listen to, to shows like this, to listen to people like you who step outside the box and are not bound by those, you know, those, that square where you have to remain. Otherwise you lose your livelihood. You do, but I've always said, despite all of that, I do have great sympathy for them. You know, people have families, people have to live, they have to eat. And I guess that there must have been a lot of times in history when scientists have had to say, I've got to eat, you know? Even Galileo, 
um, when he was forced into court all those hundreds of years ago to say that the uh, the earth did not go around the sun. In the end, he had to do it. Otherwise, they would have burned him at the stake. It's not quite that bad now, but in the end, it's fairly bad because you you might end up as a bum living in an alley somewhere. Well, not only Galileo, you have uh, Giordano Bruno, you can go to Hypatia in Alexandria. We can see what happened to that library. So if certain information goes against the established authority, it becomes a threat to their dogma, whether religious or scientific or science. I, absolutely. And although we don't have the same um, potential punishments handed out now, <laughs> right. in their own way, the punishments are just as bad because the person concerned doesn't get to pursue their science anymore because nobody will pay them anymore. Yeah, I see burning at the stake equivalent of uh, shunning or laying you off out of the institution. Oh, yeah, losing your university chair. Blacklisted, exactly. Yeah. Now, exactly. Again, what are the odds of this neat number of 400 for relative size and and distance happening in nature? That's, that's not one of those incredible facts. What about the moon's movement? which manages to precisely imitate the perceived annual movement of the sun each month. Yes, and that is um, quite difficult to explain, but once it goes inside your head and once you realize what is being said, then it becomes as incredible, if not more incredible, than the idea of solar eclipses. What happens is that when the moon rises south of east, the sun on the same day will always rise north of east. And the same is true in reverse. And the same is also true with sunsets. When the sun sets south of west, then the moon will always set south of east. It's what they call the scissoring of the sun and the moon. And it is truly remarkable. Not that easy to grasp. But anybody who wants to look it up, either in our book or uh, in any science book, will find out how it works and will really surprise themselves that such a thing, such a wonderful, neat, beautiful thing could possibly happen by chance. Do both bodies perform the same movements during opposite times of the year, meaning solstices and the equinoxes? Um, not quite in that way. It's an ongoing rolling process. But um, if the, for example, if the sun does something remarkable uh then the moon will also do something remarkable in the opposite direction so it's a rolling process but um they always stand opposite each other now how far can we trace back i don't know if you've, if you've found out how far can we trace back human knowledge about the movements of the moon in lunar calendars well one of the things that started um, Christopher Knight and I off on this line of research in the first place was the investigations of a man called Alexander Tom, who was a professor of engineering at Oxford University. Um, he took that position in the 1960s, and uh, for the remainder of his life, whenever he had any time to spare, he used to go out measuring monuments such as Stonehenge and other standing stones and standing stone circles. Um, and the reason for this was because as a young man, he'd enjoyed sailing in his native Scotland on the locks and seas around the islands. And he'd seen many uh, of these prehistoric monuments. And he wondered if they had been built to track heavenly bodies. And in particular, he wondered if they'd been built to track the moon. Now, he discovered something fantastic in terms of this unit of measurement called the megalithic yard, but his main objective was to know whether the prehistoric monuments had been built to track the sun and the moon, and he was able to prove through a lifetime of diligent study that that is exactly what happened. Now, when you consider that some of those monuments probably go back to 3,500 or 4,000 BC, then we know that here, uh, in Western Europe at least, that's how far back knowledge of the moon goes. But certain things have been found in caves in the Middle East, for example, um, and one in Africa, which appear to be, uh, for example, the shoulder bone of a bison, um, which has been um, etched with marks, which seem to follow 
the passage of a lunar cycle from new moon to full moon and back again. Uh, and these things are, uh, in one occasion, nearly 50,000 years old. So it would seem almost as long as we've been looking up at the sky, we've been fascinated by the moon. What about the connection between the lunar movement and and women and their menstrual cycle? I've always found that fascinating. I have, um, long before Chris and I came to this idea uh, about the moon and started to look at it in that way, I was always personally very interested in the effect that the moon might have on the Earth in a biological sense. It is very difficult to categorically tie um, the moon's movements and phases to the biological cycles of women, but the numbers involved are so close that it seems to me that it must be the case. Also, we know that for more primitive life forms it is so. There is a certain kind of um, subaquatic worm, the name of which escapes me, Uh, But I remember reading many, many years ago a great author called Lyle Watson who talked about this particular creature um, that broke in half, but only on one phase of one moon in the year, and they all floated to the surface at the same time. And one half of one worm would mate with one half of another worm. But they had to get it right because the fish love these subaquatic worms. So they get one chance to do this, or they get eaten. And it always happens on the first quarter of the same moon at the same time of the year. So clearly those creatures are responding to the moon. Oysters do the same thing. Uh, Scientists in America took some oysters um, from the, I think it was from the Pacific coast, and they took them way inland, somewhere up in the Rockies, uh, and, and they were studying the oysters for other reasons. But one of the things that they noticed was that the oysters started to open close to feed at a different time than would have been the case if they'd been left in the Pacific. And they eventually came to the conclusion by studying the subject that the oysters were all now opening and closing when the moon passed overhead. So the motivation for the opening and closing of oysters and other bivalve mollusks of that kind Um, almost certainly is the moon passing overhead. Now, if they can tell what the moon is doing, human beings probably can as well. And so the connection between uh, the moon and uh, the fertility cycle of women um, has yet to be absolutely proved, but it seems to be to be self-evident. Now, here's something that Plutarch, the Greek historian, wrote about the, uh, the Egyptians around 60 AD. He said, quote, "'Egyptian priests call the moon the mother of the universe.'" because the moon, having the light which makes moist and pregnant, is promotive of the generation of living beings. Unquote. Your comments about this? Um, I think that uh, people in the remote past were much, much brighter than we give them credit for. And I think that kind of statement almost certainly comes from the fact that these really, really early uh, Greek scientists had made the observation that there was a connection between the moon and uh, human fertility. But they could also have made observations about other creatures that respond to the moon. Um, you know, it's very interesting that the word lunatic, which is associated with someone who <laughs> yeah. has mental problems, uh, relates directly to the moon, um, someone who is affected by the moon. I have come across many um, workers in the medical profession who have been willing to admit to me that the incidence of, of um, uh, an upsurge of mental instability in a particular individual who is unstable to start with is affected by uh, the moon as it gets to full or when it's new. And I've spoken to police officers here in my native uh, north of England who tell me that the thing that they fear the most is when a full moon coincides with a Friday or a Saturday night because that's the time when everybody goes out drinking, uh, and that's the time when people go bonkers. And I have many doctors in my circle of friends. They all have confirmed exactly what you just said. And I recently participated in a police ride-along, so of course I had to ask the police officer the same question. I asked my doctor friend, 
And him, is it true that more crimes are committed during full moon? And the response was a yes. So whether the moon influences the, the people's bodies or, or mind is one thing. But the fact is police and doctors in the emergency room have confirmed more activity during full moon. So this is conclusive. This is conclusive right here. Oh, yes. And post-operative bleeding has been shown to be greater at the time when the moon is either full or new, which is when we get the high high tides and the low, low tides. And when you think about it, Mel, our bodies are Water. so rich in liquid that, you know, there are tides in our brains. The brain is a huge percentage of water. So if something isn't quite right to start with, then it could easily be tipped over the edge by the fact that there's a high tide happening in your brain. So what do you call it? Uh, we're <laughs> animated bags of water hanging on a mineral frame? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I always remember some creature in the first um, series of Star Trek who called us ugly bags of mostly water. <laughs> you know, speaking of this, there's a beach in Mexico that I frequent a lot, and tides are really, really pronounced there. And I'd observe how twice a day they go up and down based on not only the position of the moon, but also the sun. Do you really think the sun is really 93 million miles away? Actually, I do. Um, but the only reason that I do is because I've been told that it is. Um, ah. It's truly, I mean, yes, I suffer from this the same as everybody else. Um, the other thing about the sun is that it's, truly truly massive in comparison with uh the planets in the solar system so it is able to exert a significant gravitational effect on a planet as far away as the earth is but then the moon although it's so much smaller than the sun is very much closer but there's no doubt whatsoever that all tides on the earth are an interaction of the gravitational effect of the moon and the sun. Um, but as to whether the sun really is as far away uh, as it is suggested, I don't know. I just find it so coincidental that, you know, we, we have all sorts of listeners here, and this is why I love this program. We have people who are devoted religious people. We have atheists. We have agnostics. Everybody. I, I love discovering from all of them, but I also respect the differences. But one thing I just cannot get over my over my mind is that 400th number, the 400th number of the distance, the size, being placed where it is, the fact that we can only see one side as it rotates around the earth. I just cannot believe that this thing just happened from a Big Bang. No, nor do I. And the 400 is particularly interesting. Let me, let me tell you how I think the moon came about. I think that the sun and the earth already existed. Um, I think the earth was going around the sun in more or less the same orbit it has now in terms of distance from the sun. Um, but I think that someone or something took a look at the Earth and said, this planet is in just the right position to sustain life on a big scale, but it won't do it at the moment because it's tearing around at a fantastic speed on its own orbit. Um, there are many things about it which preclude life developing there, but if it had a sufficiently big moon, and if that moon was placed in the right orbit around it, then it would steady the planet, it would allow the planet to get an even warming, and it would make the place an absolute perfect haven for life. But it seems clear, and this is the weird thing, it seems clear to me now, and it seemed clear to Chris Knight and I right from the start, that the numbers that were employed when this engineering project was undertaken were so specific and so clever that whoever had decided to make the moon wanted to make sure that sentient beings on the Earth who would develop eventually must know for sure that this had happened. And we call this a message in a bottle. Now, the 400 
is just one of the three important numbers which were programmed into the way the moon and the earth react with the sun. So I don't think it's coincidental. And although the moon is presently one four hundredth of the distance between the earth and the sun, it wasn't always like that. It won't always be like that because originally the moon was much closer and eventually it will be much further away. But the fact that it is at that distance at precisely the time when we are advanced enough to look up and see it, that is the miracle, Mel. Have you seen the experiments uh, conducted by many people who have measured the temperature of an object at night on a full moon and found that the temperature in the shade becomes warmer and cooler yes, when it's exposed to moonlight? Your thoughts on that? Um, I, I, I hear you. I've read it. I believe it but I cannot explain it. it. There should be no way that the presence of the moon should heat anything up. I could see that if you were in open... It's actually moon, the opposite. It cools. Yeah, sorry. yeah, the opposite. I could see that if you were in open moonlight, there might be some positive effects because if you get light to a certain extent, you must get heat. But to have the thing happen in reverse, that is a puzzle. And it makes you wonder, too, if the moon has its own source of light, then. Uh, yes, but once again, there are certain things in life, I guess, that we have to take on trust. Otherwise, we have nowhere to stand, if you see what I mean. So I've always taken it that the light from the moon is a reflection... Of the sun, yeah. ...from the sun. But that doesn't mean to say that that is the case. And um, I know from our conversations before, Mel, that you and I are very much alike <laughs> in, that we, in, in that we try to remain as open-minded as we possibly can. Um, so almost anything is possible. I move. But, I mean, like, let's put it this way. But like you, like you, I, I move with the evidence like you. Yeah, yeah. Who am I to say that anything is impossible when in the same breath I'm trying to tell you that the moon was made by somebody. Right, right. And not too far from, from where you are, we have, again, you mentioned Stonehenge. Uh, is there a link between Stonehenge and perhaps the Standing Stones of Kalanish, uh, Kalanish and perhaps lunar eclipse predictions? Yes, I think so. The guy I was telling you about, Alexander Tom, um, he certainly eventually worked out that this was what was taking place. The moon is has tortuously difficult movements across the sky there are times when at rising and setting it appears to stand still there are times when it appears high in the sky times when it appears low in the sky and these are patterns which are very difficult to understand unless you know how to predict them and alexander tom showed kalanish in particular that you mentioned is the prime example of a of a structure that was almost certainly built exclusively to try and track the phases of the moon and the changes of the moon. For a very important reason, the people who lived up there, like most people in Western Europe, could only get about by water. They needed to know what the tides were going to do, and they clearly had already made that link between the moon and the tides. If you understand the moon, then to a great extent you understand the tides. So there definitely is a connection. What about what about other megalithic structures around the world? Do they appear to have lunar alignments? Take this again. Kalanish is an example. Are there others that also display the the, the lunar rotations? If we're to look at um, Central and South America, for example, although I haven't had the uh, resources in terms of time to look at some of those structures. Um, Many of them are named after the moon, and many of them are orientated in such a way that it looks as though they may have a deliberate and close association with the movements of the moon. And if the moon fascinated people in the west of Europe all those thousands of years ago, then I've no doubt that it's fascinated people elsewhere in the world as well. I mean, it is such an enigmatic object and has been so useful to humanity in terms of the light it gives at night, because, uh, you know, on a moonless night, the, there's not a lot of light about. But all these cycles, you know, I know people who 
who played the stock market based on, on the moon cycle, and they're very successful at it. How do you explain that? Or as you said, people who elect not to have an operation at certain times, perhaps when there's a full moon, because they may have some bleeding post-surgery. So some people tap into this information and use it for their benefit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would not be very keen personally to have a major operation at the time of the full or new moon. Um, and I would do everything I could to avoid it because although it's not um, uh, statistically, it's not a massive thing, it's very definitely there. And as far as the stock market is concerned, well, I did a lot of experiments when I was late teenager and in my early 20s with the moon and the stock market. And once again, there are tidal peaks and flows in the stock market. And many of these appear to have to do with the moon. So you, you connected? You were able to, to find a correlation? Um, yes and no. Uh, over certain periods of time, it seems to work extremely well. Uh, and then sometimes it appears to break down. So you cannot specifically say all the time that it will happen. And it seemed clear to me then, and it seems clear to me now, that something else is intervening. Whether it's the combination of uh, tidal peaks because of the interaction of the moon and the sun or whether some of the other planets in the solar system like the really big one jupiter for example is having a bang on these things i'm not sure it's obviously very complex but there are people who claim that they know how it works but for obvious reasons they're not telling us there's a, a guest a perspective guest that i've been trying to track down that that's exactly what he does he wrote a book on the subject and He's a, a day trader who is very successful at it. So if anybody knows who I'm talking about, stay tuned because I'm trying to track him down. When we research ancient civilizations, do you think there are commonalities when it comes to moon lore, perhaps in agriculture? I know that I believe it was China. The emperor had, had people that would find out certain days where they could do certain things so that his health could improve. Are there commonalities between civilizations and moon lore? Yes, almost always they follow the same specific patterns. Um, it doesn't just relate to the phase of the moon, but it relates to the sign of the zodiac that the moon happens to be in at any particular time. And that is also held in common. Certainly it's held in common between western uh, astrology and astronomy and what we find in the far east as you said with china um i don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that the moon has an effect on certain jobs in the garden for example um if you pick apples at a time when the moon is full or absolutely new then the apples will be glutted with uh juice and will probably rot more quickly. If you pick apples on the uh, half moon in either direction, then a lot of the sap that goes into the apples has gone back into the tree, and the apples will store much better. That's just one tiny example, but there are literally hundreds. I remember one of the first articles I ever had published was for a magazine called Practical Gardening Magazine, and it was specifically on this subject, and the reactions I got from the readers of the magazine were fantastic. And, and so many people are practicing moon law in terms of gardening all the time. Also, how you plant a, a plant um, has to do with uh, moon phases as well. If you plant um, a, a plant like, um, let's talk about a cabbage, for example, or a lettuce. If you plant that when the moon is new, then it will grow with the moon. On the other hand, something like a pea or a bean, you need to plant on the last quarter of the moon because it has a very thick skin and the germ cannot break out of the skin very quickly. It takes about a week to do that and then it will grow with the moon. And there are so many um, gardeners and farmers all over the world who have stuck to this. There, there, there used to be an incredible number of um, what were called almanacs and in America, in the USA particularly, there was loads back in the 19th century and earlier which told farmers and horticulturalists when to do things according to the moon. 
I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> the Farmer's Almanac. Yeah. And, and they have a website that tells you by region, by date, what's good for it. They get gardening calendar, fishing calendar, you name it. So, that and that has been around forever because I remember as a child going to the barber shop and the man was probably in his 70s in the 1970s and he had Farmer Almanac all over the place. So they trust that. I work uh, freelance for um, a publication called Old Moors Almanac, Fulsham's Old Moors Almanac in England. That's been on the go since 1745. And I think that the Farmer's Almanac in the United States began soon after um, European settlement. So if they, these civilizations, if they follow specific patterns, and, and, and some of them we're told were disconnected from one another, how did they acquire the knowledge purely by think, observation? I think mostly it's by observation. I mean, one of the things that I always say, because I believe it so much, is that even in very remote antiquity, people got about a lot more than we think they did. So probably word of mouth had a lot to do with it. But I think observation, if you come from a, a farming family, you know, it, had I been born into, say, uh, 11th or 12th century England in the area where I live now, undoubtedly, I would have been a farmer or a farm labourer, as would my father, his father, his father, his father. So there's a long time for these observations to build up and for um, oral traditions to be passed on. Uh, and But even now, if I go up, uh, not far from where I live now, go up into what's known as the Yorkshire Dales, where they, there's a lot of farming goes on, these people still believe in uh, lunar law. So let's take a quick break in a couple of minutes, but let me just leave with uh, this question, which I found fascinating. Let's. I want to discuss the, correct me if I'm saying this wrong, Foucault's pendulum? Yes. Focus pendulum. The pendulum would uh, swing in an entirely predictable manner at any specific location. So something happened in 1954 where Maurice Allais, a French engineer, conducted an experiment. And I want you to tell us what you found. This is really, really fascinating. But when we come back, we're going to discuss much more of why you think the moon is artificial. Who could have placed it there? For what reason? Is it hollow? Could it be machinery inside? Let's discuss all these things that I know a lot of people ponder. How can people buy the book, Who Built the Moon? If they go to um, the website, uh, which is www.whobuiltthemoon.com, then there's a link there uh, that can get the book. But the book is also available from Amazon, where it's doing quite well at the moment, I'm very pleased to say, or from um, any good local bookshop. Excellent. And I always say, support your local bookshop, because that is a species in extinction. I see less and less of them staying around, so give him some, some help. Folks, don't go anywhere. Fascinating talk with, again, a veteran of this radio program, Alan Butler, directly from England. Much more when we return. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. 